I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Josh Rogan is a columnist for The Washington Post who specializes in foreign policy issues. Not long ago, he got a dump of opposition research from an operative for a Democratic presidential candidate. It consisted of a trove of documents dug up from an archive at the University of Vermont about Bernie Sanders' days as mayor of Burlington more than 35 years ago. Disclosing that he had gotten the material from a rival campaign, but not saying which one, Rogan laid out some juicy nuggets from the archive. Sanders had met with a Soviet embassy official widely suspected of being a spy in his office in Burlington and gotten a letter from the putative spook congratulating him on his re-election as mayor. In response to a critic objecting to his praise of the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua, Sanders had defended the country's socialist leader, Daniel Ortega, and his clampdown on human rights and blamed the United States for the country's problems. Rogan's column, headlined, Bernie Sanders' Foreign Policy is a Risk for Democrats Against Donald Trump, anticipated a critique that is getting lots of traction as the candidates head into Super Tuesday. But it also revealed the role that opposition research, or oppo as politicos call it, is playing and is likely to continue to play in the 2020 presidential campaign. We'll talk to Rogan about what his documents show and how he got them, and we'll talk to the author of a new book about Donald Trump and Deutsche Bank on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, look, I have uh, trafficked in oppo research for many decades now, uh, gotten dumps, much like uh, Rogan got, about all sorts of candidates. And it's there's, uh, there's always this tension about the newsworthiness of the material versus who's pushing them and why and what their motivations are and what do you know about where the stuff is coming from. The question as to whether reporters will continue to use oppo research or not is an <laughs> is an academic debate. I mean, we are going to continue to use oppo research. And, you know, to some extent, I think that is the responsible thing to do when you're covering an election, because you do need to gather as much information as possible, verify it, hold candidates to account. And sometimes the information comes from rivals. The, it, the question is how you use it, how much information you can give to readers so that they can assess the credibility of the information, where it's coming from, whether there's some kind of spin uh, Absolutely. that's put on it. What struck me about you know Rogan's column, and we're going to talk to him about it in a in a couple of minutes, is it's one of those rare cases where he was upfront. 
This is Oppo Research. Now, the candidates, as you know, don't exactly advertise, hey, we've got Oppo guys who are compiling uh, dossiers on our rivals, and we're going to use that, and we're going to weaponize it, and we're going to leak it to reporters and use it perhaps for uh, TV ads. Yeah, it's I not, mean, they don't, they don't, and in fact, this is a bit of an issue for me, which I think that campaigns have gotten away with hiding opposition research for years. They don't disclose it on their FEC reports. What they generally do is have law firms or consultants or contractors pay for the oppo research and then list payments to the law firm or whoever the contractor is, never disclosing that it's well, oppo that, research. This it's, is what the Hillary campaign did with the Absolutely. The absolutely. Russia. And that and that was, you know, the wrong. Yeah. And you know, I've I've written that and said that. So I think it's good that we now know that at least one campaign out there is engaging in this sort of skullduggery. But you're right. If the material is newsworthy and valid, of course, um, we're going to take it and And, publish it. Right. And in this particular case, in, in Josh Rogan's column, it is good that we know it's oppo research. On the other hand, we don't know which campaign it came from. We don't know whether it came from someone who is to the right, you know, say a Bloomberg campaign, which wants to knock Sanders out because they're more in the center, or Elizabeth Warren, which wants to knock him out because they occupy the same lane, or frankly, and doesn't the, want her fingerprints, and on doesn't it. want her fingerprints right. on it, yeah. or frankly from the Trump campaign, which uh, uh, well, I think know, he said it was although, a rival although, Democratic okay, campaign. Okay, and although, yeah. and, and as I think of it, like Trump wants uh, Bernie <laughs> to get elected because he thinks that uh, he would be right. uh, a much more well. As a matter of fact, uh, some of his folks in South Carolina, as we speak, are urging Republicans to vote in the South Carolina Democratic primary for Bernie. Sanders uh, as a way of knocking down Joe Biden and, get, and speaking of Sanders which the, uh, nomination when yeah. uh, this podcast comes out uh, will be 24 hours uh, from the South Carolina primary this is Joe Biden's last stand he's gonna have to win South Carolina to move on and he's gonna have to I think win by a considerable margin maybe maybe by five points or more and even if he does, the pivot to Super Tuesday, it's three days. And so you have to still have the money in the organization to then compete in all of those Super Tuesday states across the country, including now California. And so, um, you know, this is going to be really interesting to watch. I'd say uh, Bernie is lucky that Florida is not one of those Super Tuesday states, because after his comments on 60 Minutes about Fidel Castro and having done a good thing by having a literacy program, even though Bernie was quick to say that he was also an authoritarian leader, did him no favors in a state with a very large Cuban-American community hostile to Fidel Castro. This is going to be certainly an issue for the Sanders campaign, assuming that he does as well on Super Tuesday as everybody expects. But there are a lot of wild cards out there. Yeah, there certainly are. And one of them is the fate of uh, of Mike Bloomberg, who only, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about, you know, being this important X factor in this election because of his huge amounts of money, already spent $300 million in advertising. 
and then because you know people thought that the empire was going to strike back, that is to say, the democratic establishment was going to look for a way to stop Bernie, and Bloomberg looked like the best way to do that. After his first and now even second debate, that's not looking nearly as as likely, and he's not playing in South Carolina. He is in in the Super Tuesday states, but his numbers uh, are going down now, and he has no momentum. And it'll be interesting to see whether, I mean, I guess there's some maybe very slim possibility that Bloomberg gets out and throws his support to Biden and says the only way we're going to be able to stop Bernie is if we're united. Is that a real scenario? Yeah, I think it's I think it's highly unlikely because why at this point, you know, it's all been about Super Tuesday. So why why would you do that? But if he doesn't do well, I mean, we Kevin Sheiky was on our show, his campaign manager, he essentially told us this. If he does not do well, Super Tuesday states, then he will likely get out and throw his his support i.e. money to say Biden, if Biden is still in the race, that's a big if. We now have with us Josh Rogan, the esteemed national security foreign policy columnist for The Washington Post. Josh, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be with you. So your column a few weeks ago, Bernie Sanders' foreign policy is a risk for Democrats against Trump, kind of anticipated the attacks on uh, Sanders that have played out over the last few weeks, including in the aftermath of his 60 Minutes interview in which he had some kind words to say about Fidel Castro. And it's kind of become a theme of the anti-Sanders forces. Should we give you the credit for inspiring this? <laughs> well, you know, I think two things. One, you know, the discussion of Sanders' foreign policy record is one of those things that people in foreign policy circles have known and thought about for decades, but was never really something that the broader American public had to grapple with. And when Bernie Sanders became the front runner, that all changed. Okay. And the reason that, that co- I wrote the comment that time was because I was hearing from several other campaigns that they were planning to make this an issue. And so it seemed to me that it was going to become an issue. And sure enough, it did. But, you know, there's really two separate things we're talking about here. One is, is Bernie Sanders foreign policy record wise? Is it something that us as a foreign policy or national security community think can keep America safe and promote our values and interests. The other part of it is whether or not it's a political vulnerability. And on the first part, we could have a discussion. I think reasonable people could disagree. But on whether it's a political vulnerability, I think we've seen in the weeks since I wrote the column that it clearly is. And we've also seen that the Sanders campaign reaction to that has exacerbated that problem for him. And uh, they don't seem to have come to a strategy to deal with it that can uh, guide him as he heads maybe towards the general election. What is your sense, uh, Josh, of just how much of a political vulnerability is? Because on the one hand, you know, you can certainly we're already seeing it from Democrats. We saw it in the last debate. You can imagine that the Trump campaign is already cutting ads. They're going to call him a communist, not just a socialist, uh, I suspect. But on the other hand, I mean, a lot of this is Cold War era stuff. Unless you were like my age or older, and I'm 55, you don't really remember much about the Sandinistas. Um, right. So we've gone through the 9-11 wars. The country is still exhausted. These American interventions. I mean, Trump's foreign policy in some ways overlaps with Bernie's in in that regard. So 
and I'm not arguing that it's not going to be a vulnerability, but I'm interested in your view on how much of a vulnerability you think it will be. I mean, is it is it going to be decisive? Is this going to knock him out? Right, right. So you brought up a lot of things in that question. Let me try to address them one by one. In my experience, foreign policy is not the thing that people go into the presidential voting booth and pull the lever on, okay? In the only, last time foreign policy really played a, a general election role was in 2004 in the height of the Iraq War. Uh, in 2008, it definitely played a role in the Democratic primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. But in essence... It only counts on the margins. Now, of course, sometimes elections are decided in the margins. You know, the argument that a lot of the Democratic candidates have been making is that this has implications for down ticket Democrats in purple states. If we look at the 2018 results, we see that national security centrist moderate Democrats took over a lot of Trump districts. And then having Bernie at the ticket makes them more vulnerable, this argument goes. Now, of course, when I talk to the Bernie campaign, they say the same thing that you just said, which you know, if we want to have a debate about 1980s death squads perpetrated by the Reagan campaign in Latin America, bring it on, okay? And that, so basically they're saying that voters are not going to really care about that ancient history when Bernie was supporting all of these socialist regimes all across Latin America. And then they point to his recent more defendable departures for the mainstream. He opposed the Iraq war. That turned out to be right. He opposed PNTR for China. A lot of people, including me, would say that turned out to be right. He was an early critic of the Saudi war in Yemen. I think those criticisms have borne out. And when you talk about sort of the endless war crowd and the part of the far left and the far right that have seen more negatives than positives in American leadership and intervention of all kinds, not just military intervention abroad over the last 30 or even 70 years, there is an electorate for that. There are people who want to vote for that. But the problem, of course, is that for Democrats and for U.S. foreign policy, it would be a huge departure from sort of a bipartisan consensus that we've been following all this time. And the implications of that for policy and strategy and for people around the world are massive. But before we even get there, Bernie would have to actually win the well, election. Well, for, yeah, for what it's worth, I, I think it may be less on this, the specific policy views of Bernie Sanders and more, it's almost like a more a cultural and identity thing. They're just going to turn him into a radical and it won't be that hard to do that. And I think that's going to be the problem. Right. And you, I think, you know, the, what the 60 Minutes interview showed to me is that the Sanders campaign hasn't figured out how to sort of make their argument for this alternative foreign policy in a way that insulates them from that criticism. When, when Bernie says, you know, well, there was a lot of literacy improvements in the Castro regime, it doesn't matter whether or not that's factually accurate. It's like saying, oh, well, Mussolini was a bad guy, but hey, you got the trains to run on time. You know, why would you say that? What's the upside in saying that? So I think there's no doubt that that's going to be something that's going to be an easy attack at against Bernie. You know, if, if it pushes certain voters into thinking that, you know, a, a Biden or a Buttigieg or a Klobuchar would be more responsible on foreign policy, that could definitely make a difference in the primary. In the general, what it does is it sort of removes the what Democrats think is a great attack against Trump, which is namely that he cozies up to autocrats and treats allies bad and doesn't really know what he's doing on the world stage. And, you know, I think Bernie has an argument against that for sure that he continually makes, but it makes that argument that much more 
difficult. Yeah. And look, in very narrow uh, political electoral terms, Florida is uh, kind of off the table for Bernie at the moment in the aftermath of the uh, Castro remarks. I mean, just with the large Cuban-American community. But I wanted to focus a bit on uh, what I found one of the more interesting passages in your column, because it's not something we see as upfront as you did in your column. And you talked about where you got the material that was the basis for the piece. And I'm reading from your column, a Democratic official associated with a rival campaign and concerned that Sanders foreign policy will be a liability in the general, sent me a batch of documents from the Sanders archive at the University of Vermont about his foreign policy activity as mayor of Burlington in the 1980s. So this was Oppo research. And you did something we don't always see, which is you revealed it was Oppo research from a rival campaign. Now, you didn't say which one. Do uh, your readers uh, deserve to know who is dishing this dirt on Bernie Sanders? Uh, You know, I think that's a fair question. I sort of that sort of those policies are determined by a my editors and I just did what they told me to do. But I think it is important to tell readers that this is not some sort of organic idea that came out of my head and that there are other campaigns working on it because it's it's part of the column that this is going to be an issue. And it supports the idea that campaigns are making hay out of this, which is a political point, not a policy point. As for the documents themselves, they are what they are. They're letters that and records of meetings that Bernie had when he was mayor with, you know, one Soviet official who turned out to be a, a spy and, uh, you know, Cuban leaders that he invited to Burlington. And in these documents, he's making these like very detailed defenses of these regimes, which, again, we could debate on a policy level, but show just how really committed he was at an early age to the this idea that U.S. policy, for better or worse, was something to be opposed and that U.S. intervention in these countries was harming their ability to provide democracy and freedom for the people rather than helping it. And I think in the case of the Soviet Union, maybe that in retrospect looks like some rosy glasses and some poor judgment. And then when it comes to the Sandinistas, I guess, you know, reasonable people could disagree. So, Josh, I'm curious, you mentioned your newspaper's policy, the Washington Post. So if your arrangement with your source was that you could not identify that this came from a rival campaign, then you wouldn't have been able to use that information that you got, those documents? That's a good question. I I guess I would put it this way. We always push for the most specific attribution possible. And then once we get to that level of whether of the source's willingness to use the most specific attribution possible, we make a determination over whether or not that's sufficient to warrant the publication of the information. And you know, in, that, in this particular case, that determination was made by my editors, and I agreed with it. Yeah, I mean, look, we've all been there, and uh, certainly uh, Kleidman and I have gotten uh, more than our share of oppo documents over the years and always wrestle with how you deal with that. I mean, if the, if the material is, you know, the standard rule of thumb is the material is newsworthy, it's newsworthy, and you can report it, but, you know, it's also been our experience that oftentimes how you got the material and the person and the campaign digging it up can be as much a part of the story as the material themselves. Yeah. And and that's where this does get a bit dicey. Look, as I was saying to Clydman a little 
before the show began, here we are four years later after the 2016 campaign and the role of oppo research from the Clinton campaign about Trump and his Russia ties is still a matter of continuing controversy and investigation. Yeah. You know, a couple of things. One, I think there's like a, a fundamental difference between that and this in the sense that these are documents from a public library that are any one of us could simply go today and get them. They're, they're not in dispute. In other words, even the Sanders campaign doesn't dispute them when you're talking about something right. about, you know, right. what happened with the steel dossier. That's like a, a information from a guy. You talk to a guy who we can't tell who the guy is. Yeah. And right. It's the difference between it's the difference between rumint and actual like right. uh, and vetted, actual documents. Vet, actual Which documents. Is why I think the, the analogy doesn't really apply. Well, no, no, I'm, I'm only making the point that oppo research can become a story in and of itself. And the people pushing a, a narrative, you know, one can argue, depending on how far they go and where they're coming from, there is a public right to know about that as well. And in this case, I would say the test would be, is this coming from a campaign whose candidate is willing to make this argument publicly that Sanders is a lefty who's too risky for the Democrats to nominate. And I would say, if so, then why not attach your name, candidate, to uh, what your operative is dumping on Josh Rogan? If not, if it's coming from a candidate who doesn't want to be public about this, but is doing it surreptitiously, I think it becomes a little more dicey as to how you deal with it. Yeah, I think I, I largely agree with that. I would say a couple of additional things like, you know, I think it's an open secret that all the campaigns are digging up oppo on all of the other ones all the time and dumping them on reporters all the time. So it's an ugly but ubiquitous practice that news organizations manage, in my view, almost always manage responsibly with a few exceptions to be sure. And I think, again, if you're talking about like public information that is not in dispute, that's, you know, a, a document that's just, uh, it just is what it is. And if it's 100% true and there's no doubt about that and it's a newsworthy piece of information, I, as far as I'm concerned, that's publishable, okay? And now when it gets into question is, now you've got research that you can't verify or maybe it was hacked or maybe something happened that untoward in the collecting of that information. I have very strong views of that that should make news organizations think more carefully about whether or not to publish that, especially when it comes to disinformation and state-sponsored intelligence operations and all of the WikiLeaks and and all of the Dancy stuff. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that, the, Josh. So, what, so, the, so how, did well, you, you know, how did you feel I'll about be, the Podesta emails? I mean, we wrestled I, I, with that also. Yeah, I mean, I'll be very frank with you. I didn't publish anything that I can recall in, from any of that stuff because I didn't want to be used as a tool of a foreign military intelligence organizations influence operation. And I knew that was a distinct possibility at the time and that you remember that debate as well as anyone. And so I largely avoid hack documents as a practice. I can't sit here and tell you I've never used one. But, but what is the what is the what is the moral argument there? When, if it, you know it's true, if you if it's verified and it's right. relevant and it's relevant, there are absolutists out there who would argue it really doesn't matter. <laughs> Don't really care where it comes from as long as it's it's true, relevant and newsworthy. Yeah, but you, you know as well as I do that during that entire episode, there there was a, a good reason to be very suspicious that a lot of these documents were part of a 
and actual military intelligence operations by an adversary authoritarian government against our country, okay? That's a unique circumstance. And in that circumstance, my view is no touchy, okay? And a lot of people came to a different conclusion. And I understand why, you know, that you could argue, well, it's already out there. Well, it doesn't, you know, you can't hide things from the public. Yeah, but in the end, I, as a human being and as a journalist, don't want to become a tool of a foreign intelligence operation against my country. And I, that's, uh, that's important to me. And I don't think I have to mm-hmm. think about it a lot more than that. Would you have and, re- did you write about the Snowden documents, which were the product of an illegal leak uh, right. of stolen material by somebody in, in the United States government? I don't believe I did. I'd have to check. But, uh, you know, again, I, I think reasonably people can disagree about, you know, an American whistleblower versus a GRU unit sitting in some sort of military installation trying to hack our democracy by spreading disinformation. OK, two different things. And you could come to two different reasonable agreements. I'm talking about the latter. I'm saying that was bad. And a lot of journalists, I think, made a bad judgment call in that time and space. Yeah. Looking back. I, look, I'm I'm was in the middle of that as well in the sense of I was writing certainly about the Podesta emails well aware that this was likely the product of a Russian intelligence operation and I think we certainly wrote a lot about that at the same time let's take a look at what those first Podesta emails revealed the actual transcripts of Hillary Clinton's speeches to Wall Street banks Goldman Sachs and others that had been an issue in the campaign. In fact, Bernie Sanders had been calling on Hillary Clinton to release these transcripts. The press had been pressing Sanders to release the transcripts, uh, pressing Clinton to release the transcripts, and she refused. And then WikiLeaks dumps them. To me, that's kind of like it's newsworthy material in the context of the political campaign. And if you have no reason to believe it's it's been doctored, why not publish it? Yes. And I th- again, I think that's a reasonable argument that I disagree with. And in, in other words, there, as a news organization, yes, you're within your rights ethically and legally. If the information is true, though it be hacked to publish it, if it's true and newsworthy, I think that's a standard that a lot of news organizations apply, and that's their prerogative. Now, let me address this a, a slightly different way. You know, when I was in Munich a year ago, I watched a bunch of officials, including Joe Biden at that time, release a project that was called a pledge to forego aiding and abetting election interference, okay? And this was an effort to sort of get at this question that you're trying to get at right now, which is, you know, at what point are you aiding and abetting an attack on our country? And they actually came up with a list of criteria. And then Joe Biden, you know, called on 20 20 candidates to all sign it. This was before he was a candidate, of course. And, uh, you know, I wrote the article and most people didn't read it and we all forgot about it. You'll hear Joe Biden bring this up a lot because it has a lot to do with what's going on in the interference in our elections right now. And, you know, do you share the video or do you write, give that the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans or whoever it is earned media by covering their attempts to interfere in our political discourse? You know, I think these are all legitimate questions. The fact that this project came up with an I some criteria of what exactly is aiding and abetting I thought was useful. But what, what's the criteria? Really what what are, what are the criteria? Yeah, no, I, I, I urge you to go to my uh, <laughs> <laughs> Washington Post column and, and read the whole thing. But basically it says that if you have a reasonable expectation or reasonable suspicion that what you're promoting and sharing is part of a 
foreign intelligence operation against the United States, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't help them hurt us. Okay. I don't think that's very controversial. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it can be that simple. If, if you think that this is a, a foreign military intelligence organization trying to use you to interfere in American politics, how about just don't do it? That's okay. Like all right. All right. All right. Let me, let me pose, give you a hypothetical, not, not so hypothetical. Israeli intelligence comes up with documents and satellite photos showing continued Iranian nuclear developments uh, and uh, building of centrifuges uh, you know, and other steps towards building a nuclear bomb. It's from a foreign intelligence service. They call you up. They offer to slip you the material. It's clearly furthering the Israeli agenda. But if it's real and it's about Iranian in nuclear developments, uh, that's pretty newsworthy. Do you publish it? Yeah, I think that's a. I've, if, if you're trying a couple of tough examples, you've succeeded, Mike. You know, <laughs> and, and you know, I and again, I think the, the it's a foreign the, intelligence operation. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I I think that again, specifics matter. You push for the best uh, attribution you can possibly get. You um, again, I don't think it's up to individual. Re- reporters or even colonists to make these decisions alone because they have implications for the organizations they, they work for. Uh, it's a tough one. I think it would depend on the specifics and it's it's hard to know. I think essentially you're trying to make the distinction between sources and uh, that you are aware of and sort of what the Russians are doing, which is which is to create fake organizations to trick journalists or at least give them the the plausible deniability, like global leaks and all this stuff, DC leaks, right? If you're getting a, a document from DC leaks and you don't bother to check what the heck is DC leaks and someone tells you, oh, well, that's Russian intelligence, and you're like, ah, well, who could be sure, right? I think that's less responsible, frankly, than if Israeli intelligence came to you and you're like, okay, well, at least I know what I'm dealing with. Now I can have a think about, you know, does the newsworthiness and truthfulness of these documents justify whatever attribution that I'm able to negotiate, right? And the integrity is in trying to get to that. The integrity of all journalists, I think, should be in trying to get to that balance, that balance of how do you serve your readers, protect your sources, and be true to as much transparency and accountability as possible in those difficult circumstances. Because, you know, essentially the alternative is, right, if you wanted to take your all the way, one way hypothetical, if you wanted to take it all the other way, Okay, well, we just have no secret sources, right? That's what Trump would want. And everybody has to be on the record all the time, and we're living in a world of spin and nothing, and then we can't do business, okay? So at some point, professional journalists have to make professional decisions about where the lines are. And I guess my drawing back to where we started is what I would say is that after 2016, maybe those lines weren't exactly where they should have been, and especially when it comes to forthhand information, maybe that's that should be on the other side of the line from now on given what we learned. Okay, so Josh, we got to let you go. I know it's deadline day. Um, you're writing your column. But I want to just, like, one last question, just going back to where we started in this conversation, Bernie Sanders' uh, foreign policy views. And I'm particularly interested in, you know, you've spent a lot of time looking at his record. I'm interested if you've seen evidence of a capacity for kind of change, moderation, pragmatism, 
Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, I I see a little bit of it. You know, there was a time when he called for abolishing the CIA. He doesn't do that anymore. He still praises, to some extent, Fidel Castro, but he really emphasizes Sweden and Denmark and those models more. I think he said that he would use drone strikes to go after terrorists. So tell us a little bit about, about that side of him and what we might expect. 1983 Bernie Sanders on foreign policy is not the same as 2020 Bernie Sanders on foreign policy. On one hand, he's amazingly consistent. The things that make up his core worldview, which is that, you know, the role of states and America's role in the world should be less interventionist, less aggressive, less imposing than the the consensus. That's remained consistent. But over time, he's come to positions and formed an ideological frame around his foreign policy that can make it palatable to millions of Americans, if not a majority of Americans, by connecting his support for specific policies with a a rhetorical push for the things that most Americans believe in, human rights, the rule of law, democracy, and basic freedom promotion around the world. 2020 Bernie Sanders will tell you, I want democracy and human rights for everybody. I just have a different way to get there. And what, what 20, 1983 Bernie Sanders would have told you is that America is bad, these countries are good, and we have to do everything the opposite. So I think it's a more developed foreign policy. I think it's a more sort of politically palatable foreign policy, but it's still a big departure from where we are and where most Democratic leaders, especially in Congress, are. And to that extent, I think it's going to be more of an issue in his uh, primary and yeah. possibly general election. And the election problem is, you know, what you're describing him is is kind of fighting back with nuance. And and nuance doesn't necessarily work in presidential campaigns. Obama could do it. We'll we'll see if Sanders can. Yeah, and Trump can. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Trump not exactly the uh, captain of nuance. Uh, anyway, Josh uh, Rogan, thanks for joining us and uh, get Great back feeling. to writing your column. We'll do. Thanks so much. All right. House Democrats last year subpoenaed documents from Deutsche Bank about Donald Trump's finances. Trump has refused to turn them over, but now the case is going to the Supreme Court with oral arguments scheduled in just a few weeks. We now have as our guest somebody who knows more about Trump and Deutsche Bank than anybody, David Enrich, the finance editor of The New York Times and the author of the new book, Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Trail of Destruction. David, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So if the House Democrats prevail and the Supreme Court does rule that Deutsche Bank has to turn over Trump documents, what are they likely to get? They are likely to get the mother load that everyone's been waiting for, basically. Deutsche Bank over the past two decades has stockpiled just troves of detailed financial information about Trump, his family members, his companies. It's everything from tax returns to I mean, balance sheet information. It should show where some of his money is coming from. It should show some of his business partners. And on top of all of that, it's going to show internal records from the bank where employees had raised concerns about possible money laundering risks and things like that. So this is, if the Supreme Court rules that Deutsche Bank needs to hand this stuff over, it is going to be, I think, quite an explosive cash. So so I think you referred to this as the Rosetta Stone of Trump's finances. 
if those documents are turned over. Who brought this? It's the House. Uh, yeah, it's two congressional committees. Congressional committees. So if they prevail, the Supreme Court orders that these documents be released. What are you going to specifically be looking for? What are you going to be most interested in finding out? That's a good question. No one's asked me that yet. And I don't even know where to begin. I mean, I think different if this were to let's say this stuff just all became public, which is probably not the way it'll work. It'll go to Congress and they'll sift through it. But theoretically, if it were all to be just like put on a website and we could look through it. I mean, the Times, the New York Times would have a whole team of people. People like Sue Craig would be looking for the tax stuff. There would be people like Jesse Drucker looking for stuff about his businesses. What I personally would be most interested in would be the internal records at the bank where I know a bunch of employees have raised concerns over the years about doing business with Trump for organized crime reasons or money laundering reasons. And they've raised specific concerns in a number of transactions that were in the Trump and Kushner accounts about that they were suspicious and or looked suspicious. And from a money laundering standpoint, in particular with Russia. You know, it strikes me at this point in Trump's presidency post impeachment, the bar gets pretty high for this stuff to actually have an impact. And I think it's, you know, the bar would actually be, you know, is there criminality revealed in this? Anything less suspicious activities, questionable arrangements, loans, probably is not going to cut it politically or give the Democrats much material that they can use at this point going back into Trump's past. So, when you get into that standard, if the standard is that high, criminality, well, can I make where con- might it be? Well, I, I would actually kind of contest the premise okay. of the question. And this is stuff Donald Trump since 2015, when he started running for president, has been fighting tooth and nail to keep his finances secret. He refused, obviously, to release his tax returns, and he's been going to great lengths in the federal courts, not only with Deutsche Bank, but with his accounting firm to keep his tax returns public and to keep all sorts of other financial stuff secret. And that those are not the actions of a man who has nothing to hide. And I don't so I don't know if it's criminality. I don't know if it just is going to show that he's not worth nearly as much as he is claimed to be, or if it's going to show he's in business overseas with a lot of people that would not look good publicly. But there is a reason, presumably, that Trump is fighting so hard to keep this stuff secret. And I'm not sure criminality is necessarily... We just have no idea what's in here. No, so, no I mean, I agree with that. I'm just trying to anticipate what what flows from yep. this, what the Democratic committees will be able to do with the material if if they ever get well, look, it there's... And, and, you know, hold hearings about loans from 20 years ago. Well, you you I, don't I, think I, like don't... a full yeah. MRI on Trump's finances <laughs> I think is going to yield stuff that will sh- well, shock look, people? Right, Michael right, Cohen so... came, testified before Congress last spring and basically accused Trump of committing bank fraud yes. by saying that by drastically overstating the right. value of his assets. And you, and, actually, and and you, you find it about that yeah, exactly. in your book exactly. and that he inflated the value what he had a golf course in Westchester yeah, that he inflated the value yeah, yeah. yeah and it, by, it went from I can't remember the numbers from like right. 7 million to 300 million in a very short period of time so he was systematically doing this well that is bank fraud isn't it if you submit, well there, uh, it kind uh, of bank fraud is complicated assets. it's definitely not best practices uh, <laughs> wasn't he also actually weren't there instances of him decreasing the value and that right. was, and that would be tax fraud right, right? he's doing this in both directions yeah. depending on his audience and yeah. so he is systematically overstating his assets in yeah. order to wring more money out of Deutsche Bank and he's systematically understating the value of his assets to avoid taxes and the legal thresholds there are murky and i think there's some subjectivity there probably but I mean, look trump is someone who has 
based his entire political career, his entire rationale for him being president on the notion that, which is fictional, that he is a very successful businessman. And these numbers, if they are what I think a lot of people expect them to be, could really just obliterate that. And if you've got someone like, I mean, again, I don't want to make a political prediction, but if you had someone like Mike Bloomberg running against him, there's, I mean... A lot of candidates could go to town with that. So one of the uh, uh, wait a second, the, I just on Bloomberg, he hasn't released his taxes yet either. He uh, says touche. he will. He yeah. Says he will. Okay. He says you're right. he no, will. You're totally Trump right about said that. he will. Yeah. Let's see them. Yeah, yeah. And, totally. You know, one hundred sorts of questions. So one of the uh, Dave, one of the fascinating things about this book is the relationship between Trump and Deutsche Bank. That kind of symbiotic relationship between the two. And, and one of the things you say flatly is that Deutsche Bank helped Donald Trump get elected. How did Deutsche Bank do that? And then I also want to talk about what each side got out of the other in this relationship. Yeah. Well, it's it's not like they were out like, you know, rounding up voters or anything like that, but they the bank allowed Trump to frame himself on the campaign trail as a successful businessman. And that was in large part because the only bank really over the past 20 years, but in particular over the past like eight or nine years at this point, that has been willing to touch Trump in any real capacity has been Deutsche Bank. And they enabled him to build his big skyscraper in Chicago. They enabled him to buy the Doral Golf Resort in Florida. They, at a time when other banks they just wouldn't weren't get, touching wouldn't him. get anywhere near him. And I think most importantly, it allowed him to buy and build or rent and build what had been the old post office building in Washington just down the street from the White House, which is now a luxury Trump Hotel. And Trump would go around on the campaign trail at rallies and at other events boasting about that hotel and using that as a prop to show how he was such a qualified businessman and such a great real estate developer that he had the credentials basically needed to run the country. And that these things just simply would not have happened had Deutsche Bank not shoveled hundreds of millions of dollars in his direction. So what about from the other side, from the Deutsche Bank side? Because, you know, there was the Chicago skyscraper deal, which didn't end up very well for Deutsche Bank. And yet the bank continued to loan Trump huge sums of money. What was in it for them? They were greedy. And they had such a dysfunctional corporate culture that different wings of the bank, different divisions, were kind of pitted against each other. And there's this really poisonous culture inside the bank where they would different divisions and different executives would kind of go to war with each other to just prove the other's superiority. And so after Trump, def I mean, Trump defaulted with stuff with Deutsche Bank on a number of occasions. Most recently was 2008 with the Chicago Tower. And every time another arm of the bank would come back and reinitiate or reboot the relationship with Trump. And the reality is that even though Trump defaulted on a number of occasions, these were lucrative relationships for the bank because they not only were they charging interest on the billions of dollars of loans they issued to him, but they're also charging huge fees for other services. So, and they were managing tens of millions of dollars of his personal assets. They were playing some matchmaking services where they would connect Trump with wealthy people in different parts of the world and introduce them to Trump so that they would buy condos in his properties. In Deutsche including Bank, some Russians. Including some very wealthy Russians connected to the Kremlin. Such as who? I don't know. In fact, I have a pretty good idea, but it's not. I'm not solid on enough that I'm going to say it publicly. Well, I mean, this is kind of a big issue because so many people have invested the Deutsche Bank relationship in the Deutsche Bank relationship as a way to get a window into Trump's relations with the Kremlin 
you say the Deutsche Bank helped introduce him to some wealthy Russians who bought condos. Did Trump meet with these wealthy yes. Russians? Yes. And, um, he met with them. And it's not that just they bought condos. They bought whole blocks of condos. And so they did this in the mid-2000s. Deutsche Bank would set up these gatherings in places like London where Trump and his real estate partners would come and be introduced to these clients of the bank who included some oligarchs in Russia. And just Russians or Saudis? No, it was not just Russians. Others, it was, it was yeah. a whole kind of collection, assemblage of wealthy foreign investors, most of whom were looking to park their assets in Western real estate because Western real estate is a very safe place to do it. It's untraceable, which is important. So you can't, because we have very weak uh, disclosure laws in the United States, you can basically hide your money very effectively from overseas in American real estate. And so this was a very attractive proposition for a lot of these people. So what should we make of this? We should make of this that some wealthy Russians, including those connected to the Kremlin, helped finance, helped bankroll, essentially, uh, at least one and maybe more Trump, big Trump real estate projects. And the one I'm referring to is the the resort that he helped build in Waikiki in Hawaii. There's another one that money was going to go into in Baja, California, but that fell apart in this big steaming pile of litigation. So, but but Trump actually did meet with the individuals. He knows the identity of the purchasers uh, who are buying through these LLCs. So it's like opaque well, not, he to the public, but he knows who's buying the condos. Not not necessarily as a matter of course. In this particular case, I have witnesses who were in the room when Trump met with these particular wealthy Russians. But I don't. It it's not necessarily the case always that Trump would know the owners of the LLCs who are buying in buying these condos. But in part because Trump often is not the owner of these properties himself. He has, he's basically licensed his name and then he gets a cut of the condo sales, but it's not, so he wouldn't always know who the LLC owners are. But in this case, he does. A lot of fascinating characters in your book. Who was Bill Brooksmith? Bill Brooksmith was one of the most senior executives at Deutsche Bank over a period of nearly 20 years. And he was an expert in risk management and derivatives and all sorts of like really complicated but important stuff at the bank. And he was a really conservative man. He was the son, he's American. He was a son of a Midwestern minister and grew up in rural Illinois. And he rose up through the ranks at Deutsche Bank to become one of the top executives and kind of the right-hand man to the CEO. In January 2014, he was found hanging in his apartment in London. And about a week after that, I got to know or started getting to know his son, Val, who over the ensuing years found just a really huge cache of his father's Deutsche Bank files in his personal email. He seems to have been quite a character himself, Val. Val is, that is, yeah, that is an understatement. <laughs> Val is quite a character. Yeah, he's a musician, seems to have been heavy into drugs. Uh, yeah, he has some substance abuse problems, yeah. and or has, has had, I should say. I'm not sure if he currently does. But there's, and he had a really troubled upbringing, and he... He and his mother were Ukrainian refugees who came to America. Val ended up for a period in a homeless shelter. Then he was in foster care from around ages five to nine. And then he was adopted by Bill Brooksmith. So Val Brooksmith comes to you with these documents and emails from his father's Well, uh, not quite. He, so shortly after his father's death, I was in London, working in London at the time with the Wall Street Journal. And there are all these rumors going around about the circumstances of Bill's death. And so a couple of colleagues and I split up the 
not very pleasant task of contacting his relatives, and I was the one who got Val. And so I reached out to Val and over a period of months kind of struck up a little bit of a relationship with him. And then about probably six months after his father's death, Val got into his dad's uh, Yahoo and Gmail accounts. And it turned out that Bill Brooks, for reasons that remain kind of unclear, had been sending and receiving just thousands of emails, Deutsche Bank-related emails, and had tons of Deutsche Bank documents and stuff in his email accounts. And Val, who, as you said, is a musician and has zero experience in finance, was kind of looking for someone to help him kind of decipher some of this stuff, but also figure out what to even be searching so for. So is there anything that sheds light on why the father committed suicide and whether it was related to events at the bank yeah. and Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, there's no reason to think it has anything to do with Trump, but it definitely has something to do with the bank. I mean, there's, among many other things, Val found there, there were seven suicide notes, which Val had not actually seen, but he found them in the emails and in his mother's emails, in fact. And one of the suicide notes was to the bank CEO at the time. And Bill, I mean, without giving away too much of the story, it was very clear that Deutsche Bank was on his mind in a serious way when he decided to die. And he was very distressed about some of the things that had been going on inside the company. So another fascinating character in your book is Justin Kennedy, the son of retired Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was a banker to Donald Trump. Tell us about Justin Kennedy's role. So he, Justin Kennedy, arrived at Deutsche Bank in the late 1990s, right at the same time that the bank was starting its relationship with Donald Trump. And Kennedy was on a team of bankers that made the first loans to Trump. It was hundreds of millions of dollars to finance the renovation and construction of skyscrapers in Manhattan. And Kennedy Kennedy had already kind of known Trump a little bit from his days in the real estate world. and But through his work at Deutsche Bank, they became, they became much closer. And Kennedy became the lead, one of the lead people that arranged the kind of the, the landmark Deutsche Bank loan to Trump, which was a $640 million deal to finance a skyscraper in downtown Chicago. And Kennedy and Trump, I don't want to say they became personally close, but they were certainly professionally close. I mean, they would spend time together at nightclubs or at the U.S. Open tennis tournament. Trump would invite him over to Trump Tower. Kennedy struck up a relationship with Ivanka and later with Jared and Jared Kushner. And, and Anthony Kennedy, in fact, Deutsche Bank was a really big part of his son's life. And Anthony Kennedy, he would stop by Deutsche Bank's offices sometimes and say hi to his colleagues and give them little hugs and thank them all for taking such good care of his son. And this became, I and mean, over the years, it's uh, Kennedy was not the most important banker to Trump. That title goes to Rosemary Vrablic, another Deutsche Bank executive. But he was, you know, one of he was probably number two. But you contend that that relationship in some ways, led to you know one of the most important, significant moments in the Trump presidency in some ways, right? Because it helped coax Justice Kennedy to retire for the Supreme Court, Justice Kennedy being, of course, the uh, iconic swing voter and liberal on a number of social issues, allowing President Trump to replace him with Neil Gorsuch. Uh, Actually, with Kavanaugh. Oh, uh, with Kavanaugh. That's right. With Kavanaugh, right. Yeah. And there's no question that Trump and the White House used the close relationship he had built over the years with Justin Kennedy as a tool to increase Anthony Kennedy's comfort level with the Trump administration. Did they ever ask him to resign? No, I don't know. Not not that I'm yeah. aware of. But and what starting very shortly after Trump took office, there was a coordinated White House charm offensive to increase 
Kennedy's comfort level with the Trumps. And Justin Kennedy played a, a big role in that in multiple occasions. I mean, there's one scene where Ivanka at, at the inaugural, actually, at a lunch after Trump is sworn in, Ivanka is seated right next to Justice Kennedy and spends the lunch just like talking about her great relationship with his son. And that was one of a number of instances where either the president or one of his family members really, and I want to be careful in the words I use, but I I think essentially curried favor with Anthony Kennedy by repeatedly lauding his son and citing the warm relationship that he had with Trump. So when you were last on the show, which was some months ago, we talked about the whistleblower you had written about who had identified potentially suspicious financial transactions at Deutsche Bank involving Trump and Jared Kushner. Now, do we have any better idea today of what those suspicious transactions were. Not really is the short answer, I'm sorry to say. Um, I've tried, mm-hmm. and it, it's hard. And it, Tammy McFadden is the whistleblower in this case, and she is under, I think, a lot of legal pressure, including from law enforcement, to keep quiet about what's going on. And it, Is that because there's an active investigation? The, well, there's definitely an active federal criminal investigation into Deutsche Bank and its activities with Russians. There's I know that people close to Tammy McFadden have been interviewed by FBI agents about what happened, as have a number of other sources I've spoken with, and frankly, including Val Brokesmith. So the short answer is no. What I know is basically what I knew. And there's a little more detail in the book about this. But it's essentially that in the summer of 2016, McFadden, basically Deutsche Bank's internal computer systems flagged some transactions in the Kushner company's accounts where money was moving to one or more kind of well-connected Russians. And... McFadden, who is an anti-money laundering compliance officer for the bank and pretty well regarded, saw this, looked into it a little bit and thought it was kind of a no brainer. This is clearly suspicious and clearly needed to be flagged to the arm of the Treasury Department that polices financial crimes. And so she wrote up a suspicious activity report and it was going to be sent until her superiors took a look at it and overruled her and killed it. So at the end of the day, uh, David, Trump does pay back pretty much all of his loans. Uh, Not all of them. Well, there's still 350 million of them outstanding. We have no idea what's happened with those. Okay. (laughs) Other than the 350. (laughs) But he paid back a lot. Other than the small matter of $350 million, which he has yet to repay. And he defaulted on a roughly $500 million bond offering. He defaulted on the $640 million Chicago loan. So there's, I mean, that's more than a billion right there. Right. Right, right. So I was going to say because he did, but he did pay back. In the end, he was able. The, the what was it, the the Chicago Tower. Yeah. He that paid back the, a bunch of that ultimately. With some of it was money that he borrowed right. from, and that and that you mentioned Rosemary Vrablic. Vrablic, and that's the whole kind of Deutsche Bank gets into the personal banking yep. business, and at the end, she believes that she's going to be scapegoated for that relationship. Tell us about Rosemary Vrablic and and how that all played out. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've done a lot of interviews for the book, and you were the first one to ask actually about this episode, which has kind of surprised me. I mean, so Vrablic is someone who wrote, kind of climbed up from, she was a bank teller back in the day and kind of slowly but surely climbed, clawed her way up through the ranks of this male-dominated profession and becomes, by the late 2000s, probably the most successful banker to the ultra-rich in New York City, which is, you know, it's a very crowded marketplace. And one of her prized clients is Jared Kushner, and then there's Donald Trump. And 
Vrablic becomes, she's kind of the toast of Deutsche Bank. I mean, she is a rainmaker, and the relationship with the Trump and Trumps and Kushners is enormously lucrative for her division of the so bank. Is this still kind of still a man's world? I mean, is it all surprising oh, yeah. that a woman is? I, I mean, it's not unheard of, yeah, but yeah. she's definitely, I'm making this up, but it's probably 80% men, yeah. maybe even more than that at that, at that level. And uh, But she is, by all accounts, everyone I've spoken to, one of the best bankers out there. And uh, and the Trump relationship is her uh, probably her biggest client. It's certainly one of them, and it, and it's a it's a hugely lucrative one for her, and the, her superiors support it right up to the CEO level. Everyone is behind it, and then starting in 2017 and 2016, there is this internal blame game at Deutsche Bank over who on earth got us into this mess with Donald Trump, and how could this happen? Because he's running for president. Yeah, he's and running he's for president. Incredibly polarizing. Yeah, he's incredibly polarizing, and the fact that they have all these huge loans to Trump is itself kind of an indictment of Deutsche Bank's culture and like you know appetite for risk i mean no one else no other reckless it is reckless i mean even if the loans ultimately pay off it's really reckless no one else this guy has a very well documented pattern of stiffing everyone he works with and not everyone many people in institutions that he works with and so vrablik becomes concerned as you know going into 2018 and 2019 as deutsche bank looks to circle the wagons around its top executives that she is going to be hung out to dry and she is going to be just single-handedly blamed for all these loans which you know she is the point person on the relationship but it's not like she was secretly dispensing loans to him i mean this is this stuff ran up through like a bunch of different committees and was signed off at the top and so vrablik goes to the pretty unusual lengths last year maybe in 2018 of printing out a bunch of the documentation around these loans and some of the email chains that she is on that show that this was you know Everyone knew what was going on, and this is a kind of unified bank decision to be lending these hundreds of millions of dollars. And she prints them out and takes them home to her penthouse. And there they remain. And she, I think that's kind of a, you know, it's an insurance policy essentially for her. Let me just take you back to the uh, Supreme Court argument coming up. The Trump lawyers are arguing against having to turn over the material. What's their argument? Well, they're not arguing against having to turn over the materials. They're arguing that Deutsche Bank shouldn't be allowed to turn over the materials. So, okay. Or maybe that's the same thing, in yeah. essence. Their argument is that this is none of Congress's business. They're arguing that this is a witch hunt by Congress and that there's no legitimate legislative or investigative interest in Congress getting its hands on Trump's personal financial secrets. And the House counter to that is what? That this is the president of the United States, and he is the very definition of a public figure, and his personal finances, first of all, are the public in the public's interest to be disclosed. And more important, these investigations are looking into particular specific issues, including whether Trump is essentially in hock to foreign institutions or governments, and and also just whether he, well, has, he is in hock to Deutsche Bank to un- undoubtedly over three hundred million yeah, dollars. By far, biggest, his biggest right. predator is yeah. a foreign institution, but also whether and this these have arisen out of investigations into Russian interference in the twenty sixteen election. And obviously, Deutsche Bank has done some work that has connected Trump with Russians. And and they're also just looking for evidence. The Financial Services Committee is looking for 
any evidence of wrongdoing by Trump or his company over the years. I guess Justice Kennedy would have had to have, had to have recused himself <laughs> he, from this case. Well, uh, <laughs> it's interesting if whether he would or not. Well, needless to say, let's see. So the arguments are scheduled for the end of March, oral arguments. So presumably we get a uh, ruling from the Supreme Court yeah, in, in June, June, at which point uh, we can expect everybody to be scrambling to buy a copy of Dark Towers. <laughs> they already uh, should be. Do it preemptively. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump and an epic trail of destruction. David Enrich, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Washington Post foreign policy columnist Josh Rogan and author David Enrich for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.